On this podcast, we talk about violent crime that's not suitable for young listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Podcast. We are a true crime policy podcast. I'm Kimberly Dudick, your host, and today we're going to be having an update to our season one. Season one, we've explored the Lady of the Dunes mystery regarding a woman's murdered body discovered with her hands removed on the sand dunes in Provincetown in 1974. Her murderer has never been identified and the mystery of her death continues. So we're bringing you this special episode as an update with two experts on the mystery who are going to talk about their work and share some of their thoughts. So I'm excited to have with us today, Frank Durant and Christopher Sutherland. They will be joining us and I'm just going to turn it over to you both if you could go ahead and introduce yourselves and briefly briefly say what your relation is to the Lady of the Dunes mystery. Um, Who wants to go first, jump in. I would say Frank because he's the he's the director. All right, Frank, go for it. Yeah, well, you know, documentaries don't have really directors. If it was a scripted project, it would definitely be directed. So again, I am one of the, I am the producer. I'm the one that brought this all together. Um, my contact w- with this is I, I didn't know anything about the Lay of the Dunes until I was contacted by multiple people on my last documentary that I produced back in 2018. And not being from the Cape, I've only summoned in the Cape. That's completely different for someone who lives in Cape Cod year-round like Chris. Because even though this is Massachusetts' longest unsolved murder mystery, this is one of of Cape Cod's story because it's been going on since 1974. And what I've learned right now is we gear up to having two free screenings in Dennis and Provincetown. People are talking because this is a story that generations have grown up with. So my initial introduction was after interviewing local, many local people for this other documentary, they all suggested you need to do your next documentary on Lady of the Dunes. So you have shot a Lady of the Dunes documentary. Is it all completed? Yep, we uh, just spoke with the editor today. And I do apologize, I was eight minutes late because this whole day has just been a late day. Uh, We have a 92 minute finished product and uh, it's ready for the next stages to really get out and be seen by as many people as possible. So the goal initially um, was to produce a nice little short, kind of not on the lay of the dunes, but how it's affected the people of Cape Cod and really focusing on Chief James Meads, who was the chief of police in Provincetown during this murder. And the more people we talked to, the more people we interviewed, the more information we got, we realized this has to be feature length. There's so much information where initially the, the original running time was around two hours. And I go, this is becoming almost like a mini series. We need to condense this because we were looking at a lot of different uh, avenues. And at the end of the production, which was last April, we had 52 hours of footage that we had to bring down to 90 minutes. We shot with four cameramen. So every day we were just constantly getting more and more interviews and B-roll footage throughout the, the town of Provincetown. So the last 10 months has been focused on how can we get a beginning and middle and end of the story. All right. So now, Christopher Sutherland, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Well, I am a 12th generation Cape Cotter. So when I say I've got roots here, I mean, they go literally back to the second Mayflower voyage. And Deacon John Doan, who helped settle the town of East Ham, is my ninth great grandfather. Mm-hmm. I never thought I would be someone who is considered a expert on anything on Cape Cod. But that happened really in the last 10 years, thanks to exploring my own family tree. And when it comes to the Lady of the Dunes, it's a story that I've been familiar with most of my adult life. Just the idea that something like this could happen in a place that when I was a kid growing up, Cape Cod was this paradise. You know, summertime, you had a lot of tourists, it was busy. Wintertime, it was slower, but it was just this place that everyone wanted to come to and it seemed like kind of the perfect place to live and and it is in many ways I don't want to but learning about the 
Lady of the Dunes and kind of the whole spider web that comes from it, it gives you a whole different perspective on the place that I call home. And so when Frank reached out to me last May about meeting and possibly doing the book at first, I was like, I'm no expert on this. So I actually tried to like direct him towards other people. But when I met with him and just his passion for the project is just so evident right at the beginning that I was like, I need to be a part of this and do my best to take, like he said, the 52 hours worth of footage and his whole story and put it in book form. And that's kind of where I came in. Mm -hmm. So the spider web that comes from the Lady of the Dunes mystery and the whole story, let's just tell people about what, the, what does that mean? I mean, Frank, why don't you go ahead and tell us, just tell listeners what that is. And Chris, feel free to jump in whenever you want. You know, a good example of, of the spider web uh, concept was, was Chris and I were at St. Peter's Cemetery last weekend and we're walking around because we're trying to find a grave. And we noticed that two names, last names keep coming up. And I'm like, wow, for about thousands of people, there's so many people with the same last name of, of Meads or Costa or Portuguese. And it's almost like, yeah, this is small town USA, America, where, you know, year round, you've less than, I want to say 2000 people, Chris, that are there during the, during the off season. So this community is literally a small group where everybody is connected to everybody else, whether through a, a third cousin or so-and-so knew somebody or lived with somebody or went to school with somebody. So when you start doing investigation on this, there are so many other comparisons to other murders that were happening in, in, in the area um, in that generation, but also how you interview one person, you realize they, their primary sources, I'm talking to people that something that happened 47 years ago, and they said, oh, yeah, I knew that person, or I, I was associated, or I was there that, that day. So it's really hitting close to home where this is the first time in 47 years where people have sat down and been interviewed on this subject. So as we kept going on in pre-production, but also production, and as Chris started writing more and more, it just got more in depth that this is more than just a story about a, a dead girl in the dunes. This has to do a lot about what was happening there in the summer of 74. That's what I found interesting, like Frank is saying, that one, one route inevitably leads to several others. And mm -hmm. I found it interesting, as we were leaving Provincetown this last weekend, I had this kind of epiphany where the setting, as far as the Lady of the Dunes murder, that time, the early 70s, it's almost like a stage, like a play. There's all these different people that are a part of it. And there are different routes to get to the same area. So the Lady of the Dunes is, it's the metaphor from writing, pardon my being a writer, but there's a lot of fire roads in the Truro Woods that all come from all different angles, but you end up getting to the same place. And that's what I found fascinating about the Lady of the Dunes is that the Lady of the Dunes herself is a is a road in, but then there's other people. There's I don't want to you know go into just specific names, but there's all different people that lead you in, and so the whole Provincetown stage it's it's fascinating. That's where the spider web comes in. It sounds better than fire roads. Mm. Well, let's go back to that summer of 1974. What was happening in Provincetown during that summer? Well, to understand not just the time period of the 70s, but exactly what the town of Provincetown is during the summer season, let alone all of Cape Cod. My introduction to Cape Cod was when my family and I would summer in Dennis throughout the 1980s. And you only see what's on the surface of miniature golf, going to the beaches, bumper car boats and uh, bumper cars and arcades and going to the mall. And then there's that off season where the tourists go back to New York, New Jersey and throughout New England. And then you have the real Cape Cod of the people who call it home year round. Provincetown has always been, in, in my opinion, um, kind of a beacon. That was one of the, the um, premises of the documentary I did on Henry Faber DeRose, Henry 
Penny David Thoreau's Cape Cod, where, you know, the book opens up with a shipwreck. So we open up with death and destruction. And as he's taking this pilgrimage throughout Cape Cod to the tip of Cape Cod, which is Provincetown, he's traveling toward the light. That's what a pilgrim does, whether you're going for God, salvation, something. People have been going to Provincetown for the last hundred years in search of that light. If you talk to any artist who's there, we have an amazing amount of um, artists who are painters, sculptors, and they understand that light because there's ocean on three sides of them. So when you're looking to really capture like daybreak light, it's there. So an artist wants to be in Provincetown, even if it's the theater or film. And then you have a lot of people, generations, who have always come to P-Town to escape, to start over, to disappear. And that's part of the ongoing theme of Provincetown of it's not just a random place her body was found. It's very unique to the story, to the investigation and why she was found in the dunes of P-Town. But for the 1970s of the, of the drug culture of the late 60s going all the way into the mid-70s, the drug culture, what was happening to many people that time period does speak volumes to why this woman was found dead and possibly why she was murdered. So um, tell me, I know that people are probably familiar with this story, especially if they've listened to the podcast or if they're from the area, but what, what is that story? What did you learn through your work in this? And I'd like you both to talk about it because you've both taken a little bit of a different angle. So, mm -hmm. so Chris, let's start with you. What did you learn through this process and what is the story that you've uncovered? What I've learned is that there's always more than meets the eye to most things. So like Frank was saying, when he would visit in the summer, that as he named what you see as far as things to do and attractions in the summer, that's how I always saw Cape Cod. And now the Lady of the Dunes was always there. And when I was older, Krista Worthington, her murder, basically the same in Truro, that was a shock to the system. The thing is, that's not all there is. It is very much like, what was it that Stephen said? Like an onion? It's mm. like there's layers and layers. And so the more I went along with the book, the book is literally what Frank has seen and done for this project. So it's everything is through his eyes. So the more and more that I would ask him questions and the more things that I learned from people that he spoke with, it was almost like the less I was surprised. My shock level as far as what went on with the Lady of the Dunes, the shock wore off where I was like, this now is starting to seem like it could have happened more than we realize that the Lady of the Dunes may not be the only <clears throat> story, that there may be others that kind of get uncovered through the Lady of the Dunes. And there is an example, and I don't know, but we'll be jumping ahead as far as Haddon Clark goes, but there's other connections now where I almost feel that this book, this project, it's there's more to it. It's more meaningful as far as it may have effects on a lot of other people, a lot of cases and things like that. It's I'm very excited for what comes next. The writing of the book has been just eye-opening and a lot of fun, but morbid, but it's also what may come from what the, the work that is being done is very exciting. So Frank, yeah, I, from your viewpoint, what, yeah, tell us your viewpoint about the story and then onto the investigation also. Well, it's almost like we had some people look at, we had two private investigators uh, interview and work on the documentary. And there's that eight by 10 black and white glossy photo that's available for anybody to watch on, on uh, see on Google of her crime scene. It's a side profile of her laying face down in the dunes. And I've seen this hundreds of times. And then I send this off to my PIs and they see something quite different, which I could not see with the naked eye. And as soon as you see it, it's there forever. So it's almost the thing like what Chris says, it's like you go down that road time and time again, and then you say, you, you see these connections to the story and go, this has been in front of me this whole time. I did not see it. Um, the thing that really didn't shock me, but I was opening up more doors to find out that if you just open up the case and read on Wikipedia what's there, a lot of what is read is a complete fabrication. 
And as we start to talk to more primary sources, people who were, who were there in the 70s and 80s that worked on the investigation, it's almost an eye-opener of like, okay, what do we believe? Because none of us have looked at the real case file. Unless you're law enforcement, you're just getting what you see on YouTube and podcasts and what is really based on Wikipedia. So my big thing was, all right, you know what? Let's keep searching here. If this we found is not true, what else isn't true? And then we're trying to get more and more facts and more information, whether we're trying to go the uh, investigation route, the scientific route with forensic DNA, or at the same time going the spiritual route and, and working with multiple psychic mediums who've worked on cold cases and to see, let's see if we're all on the same page. And we were not too shocked, but almost pleased to find out that all three are giving us the same results. So it's kind of um, not the goal, but the, the goal is to get people talking initially. Initially, yeah, let's solve this case. Let's let's try to see if we can find something that law enforcement hasn't done in 47 years. But then as we got back to reality, the big thing is, for the very least, people are going to talk once they read this book or, or see the documentary. So I know you probably don't want to give any spoilers because we want people to both read the book and see the movie. But so talk talk as much as you want. What, what do you mean that there is complete <laughs> fabrication? Do you think that people were intentionally misled or, you know, as the internet works, Wikipedia just has, you know, promulgated what people put on there? What are your thoughts on that? I'll let Chris answer this, but my initial thought is when someone catches a fish and by the time you hear it through five people, you think the fish is a 35-inch striper. And you find out, no, I just caught a cod. I go, well, after I talked to this person and it went down the road, it finds out that it just became a, a flat-out lie. And we found some, we actually spoke to one woman, Milda Chaplin, who just turned 91. Uh, she, she's been a June dweller since 1953. The, the, this girl's body was found right in the vicinity of where her, her uh, dune shack has been. And she met with Jimmy Means and talked, and there was a little bit of a, information that was made a fabrication to protect the case. And she was the first person to tell us that, oh no, what, what you think is true and what the general public thinks is true is not. And chief of police did that to protect the crime scene of the case to see if any information was going to come. If they were going to say, oh yeah, yeah, this, this is what we know about the case. They could tell if someone was lying or not. And I'm being very kind of vague because I'm trying to protect one of, the, one of those um, interesting facts that we bring to the table in, in this documentary. One thing we did was I, I ended up reaching out to the attorneys that represent James Whitey Bolger. And they returned my call, very professional. And they said, we know uh, James Bolger was asked multiple times by the chief of police at the time in Provincetown if he had any involvement, and James Bolger did give a response. And so I was like, "Oh, can I have it?" And like, "Yeah, well, let me email it to you." So they told me, "Don't fabricate, you know, don't take this. This is what it is." So we actually have a response from James Bolger when he was interrogated during his his, his court uh, trial, and we have that as one of the next chapters of the story to to give to the public. Well, I know I want to hear that because that is exciting, but I'm one of the ones who really care about this. Chris, is there anything you wanted to add on to that? So for me, working on this book, like I said, it's changed my opinion of the whole story and not the opinion of the whole thing of Cape Cod. But when I was growing up, I always believed that it was a young girl and a boyfriend lover something walked out in the dunes to do whatever something went wrong he snapped he killed her left her there and working on this book i always tell people i don't spoil things i just say whatever you think you know about the lady of the dunes it's you know is wrong hmm. you know yes there was a body found in the dunes that's about the only thing that matches up to what i thought growing up and it's just amazing the names that get brought in the like uh frank said the the mediums and these random i, I don't want to say pieces of evidence but things that get brought in these avenues that you go down for clues that are just nothing that i would ever have imagined being tied into this case that i thought <laughs> growing up was just you know yeah they didn't solve it they don't know who she is but it's real cut and dry. This is what it is. And the more you dig, the more you find. And mm -hmm. that's what makes it just fascinating. And it's, I'm like, like Frank said, I'm trying to say a lot without saying a lot because there's so many amazing things that like when I'm with family and I tell them, cause my stepfather, his family 
is from Provincetown. They're related to the Costas. He doesn't know if he's related to Tony Costa, but I'll tell them things that it just blows their mind. So I, if they're that excited, I can't wait for people that are interested in this case and true crime to see the documentary and read the book because it's going to blow away what they thought they knew. One of the early on, um, it was funny. Oh, it's not really funny. A lot of people in the community just do not want to talk about this anymore. So you go back to generations of, of the Yankees that will always say, we, we don't talk about that at the dinner table. Then you got a lot of the, the younger generation. We talk about everything now. And part of the reason, in my opinion, why this hasn't been solved is you got a good percent of the population who, oh, can we just not go back to the 1970s? We're, we're done. We don't want to talk about it because you're not just talking about this, this girl's murder. You're talking about what was happening on Commercial Street. And it's a time period that a lot of my parents grew up in. So they can tell you, oh, yeah, the 60s, man, the early 70s. Uh, a lot of that is still true today where things that were illegal that was happening there in Cape Cod, if not throughout the country, was present that day when she was murdered. So we need to talk about the drug culture. We need to talk about gun running. We need to talk about um, uh, illegal entities happening in the community. And at the same time, we need to talk about sex trafficking. Even though they didn't call it that, there's a lot of signs to the time period, the position of her body, that this happens to a, a lot, if not most, of victims of sex trafficking. So we, we need to throw that out there to see, is there a connection that this was the reason why she or her, her, her dead body was found in, in Provincetown? So what were the investigative steps that you took in making the documentary? What did you do investigatively? Um, we did take a trip out to the dunes. We wanted to see exactly where her body was found. And that's even part of the mystery of the, the assumption of where she's found. Is it the real location or, or a fake location? But once you get out there, every depiction, every video and podcast does not do justice to where her body was found. And even the specific location, once you get out there and see it with your own eyes, you understand this was not a random location. Someone had to know about this. And if you knew what was happening at the west pot, east pot, and south pot of the dunes, someone knew that if you dropped a body anywhere else, it would have been found in 24 hours, as opposed to this location. So for this to be random, th there's no way. Um, so investigating the position of the body, investigating blood spread, so anything that would bring up over a new light that really they didn't have that technology in the, in the 70s as opposed to looking at this as a cold case with fresh eyes. Um, we were more than pleased to find out that a lot of people gave their insight, which is something you should do because you have literally hundreds of thousands of cold cases that just get shelved. No one looks at it with a new percep perception. My goal was to say, you know what, let's look at this in the eyes of a forensic scientist. Let's look at this as someone on the spiritual side. Let's look at this through private investigators' eyes. And then also look at this from people who are from and live in Provincetown and still get their general opinion to educate the audience of, okay, tell us what the town is about and what that generation was all about. So we can kind of create the setting for the audience before we even get into the murder. So what were some of the scientific methods that you, you used? Well, we interviewed um, three forensic uh, scientists. Uh, we talked with Margaret uh, Press with the DNA Doe Project, uh, Clara Glenn from the University of Connecticut. She came down, we interviewed her, and she gives the audience an education 101 of what this means. Because as a layman, most people still look at DNA as what they learned from watching Jurassic Park. So a, a lot has happened in 30 years since that movie came out, but especially just in the last year and a half to two years, the, um, the, the knowledge that we are getting now with solving cold cases, just with the technology we have since, since late 2020, um, we have the technology. In my opinion, I really feel this is the year where I hope when we premiere this on April the 1st, they announce who she is with, with uh, testing her DNA. I'd be totally fine if people walk out saying, we don't have to see the documentary now because the case is solved. I'm hoping sooner than later, there will be a lead and a connection that we can find out what her identity is. Because I talked to so many people in law enforcement. They say, would you rather know who the, the, the murderer is or her identity? And they said, the identity. Once we find out who she is, we'll find out exactly who was she last seen with, who was she associated with, and right there, you'd solve both mysteries. 
So now let's go to the spiritual side of it. You said you were both um, at some cemeteries, just I think you said last week. So mm -hmm. tell me about where you were and what you did there and what you learned. Chris, it's on you. So I'll, I'll try to make this brief because this was awesome. And this is going to be in the book because it's, it seems like the, the more we go, the more gets put into this book, which I mm. love. But so Stephen, the medium, he met us at the St. Peter's Cemetery at the grave of the Lady of the Dunes. And he, I shot the video. I'm going to try to edit it and put it on YouTube. But, you know, he was speaking with her and I made it a point to tell him, you know, please tell her I'm sorry. I didn't have any coins to put on her grave because I, I visited her grave several times, even before working on this book for the documentary. And I would always leave something for her. And he made a point to say that she was just happy that we were working on the project and that we were here at all. The thing that I found really fascinating about St. Peter's was that Tony Costa is buried there in an unmarked grave. And one of his victims, Susan Perry, is also buried there. This is a whole other story here where Frank and I were trying to find Susan Perry's grave. And it was just, St. Peter's Cemetery is huge. I mean, if, if you don't know what you're looking for, you're going to get lost. And we walked and walked and walked while we were waiting for Stephen to show up. And finally, we're just like, I forget it. Let's walk back to the car. And on the way back, if Frank hadn't been looking to the left at that moment, he wouldn't have seen Susan Perry's grave mostly overgrown. And it was literally like a movie scene where he stopped, saw it, and he's on the ground uncovering it. And there she is. And mm -hmm. so Stephen went down and afterwards and spoke with her. And it was amazing the difference between the Lady of the Dunes and Susan Perry as far as their personalities coming through. Mm -hmm. And it's wild because Susan Perry was 18 when she was murdered. She was very shy and reserved so i'm shooting this video and steven is speaking and all of a sudden he says did you hear that and he said it was kind of like a buzzing wind that was other spirits from the cemetery coming because susan perry was not sure if she wanted to speak so they were almost like her support group and i will say i have not gone back to listen to the video yet to hear if i can hear anything i'm almost nervous to actually in case i do hear it but to see a medium work in front of you is fascinating because i'm working on the book i'm writing what they did without me being there so it's like meeting movie characters but they're real people but that was the saint peter's was just fascinating mm -hmm. During the investigation, I gave three people the names of Agent X, Agent Y, and Agent Z. And Agent X is a former FBI agent who had fed us a lot of information. Also, anything that we found, I told him, listen, I'll give to you as well if you want to pass it on. That way, any, any facts we get, anything that's going to affect the investigation, we want to make sure that law enforcement has that. And um, he told me early on, he goes, I hate to say it, but I think all your answers are buried at St. Peter's. And you got to look at a lot of people who are buried there from former investigators. A lot of interesting people are buried there at St. Peter's. And um, it's funny, Stephen the Medium almost gave us the outlook like um, the grave is our cubicle in the afterlife where the Lady of the Dunes even says, I'm not here most of the time. You know, I check in at, at nighttime, she was at my grave. And I go back to the dunes. I go to places which are fun. I think to myself, yeah, I can only imagine if you're just on your grave sitting, just talking to the other dead people. Unless like, what do you do when you're dead? And it's just funny how even um, Sydney Monzon that we visited, we went with a, a different medium and she kind of said, hey, Frank, thanks, but I'm not here. This is my body. I'm, I'm at the, I'm having fun right now at places that I used to visit in the 1960s. And I'm just, you know, she wants to have fun and be a place of peace for eternity. So it's kind of like, thank you for coming at the grave and giving me, you know, being nice, but I'm not here. And I'll say this out of no disrespect. It, it makes great theater. Like a lot of the interviews we got, a lot of things that we captured on camera, it makes great theater. But at the same time, I have to remind myself, we're not here to exploit. The goal is to bring facts to the to the table. And like if now if we, if we bring up uh, Hayden Clark, um, 
it's it's I don't want to keep I don't want to say it's funny to receive a letter from a, a serial killer, but it makes it makes your investigation really real. That's like okay. And uh, Chris talks a lot about this in the book. And um, you know, spoilers. I forgot to send the letter from a PO box, so I have Hayden Clark who knows where I live. And uh, Chris was like, "Wow, what was that like?" It's like, well, the wife wasn't happy when she found that out. It's like, really? And you know, he's, he's up for parole in it in about a year and a half. And I was like, oh. Yeah, I should have told you what I'm, you know, I'm, I'm making a documentary, honey, and, you know, serial killer knows where I live. Um, but as eight letters later, we asked Hayden a lot of questions. And as it came out, um, yeah, we were, we were shocked at the answers he gave us. So I'll, I'll, I'll hand it off to Chris now with his, uh, his insight. So all of those letters from Hayden Clark are on my table over there. I transcribe most of them into the book because it's great to just put his words, his manifesto out there. Like you can feel his energy as like negative and it's odd at sometimes. He has the same sort of manifesto with every letter. He'll say the same things, but what I found unbelievable was so I think this will be, I don't know how much of it is in the documentary, but the last letter that I transcribed is from October. And I just go through and it's basically, I changed the font in the book. So I know it's a letter from Hayden Clark and I'm going through and it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all your usual manifesto. I've heard all this before. I get to the last paragraph of the last letter and I'm transcribing and he just offers up this other connected story that now is I had to kind of investigate into. So this may be something for another podcast, but I don't know if you've ever heard the story of Bonnie Bickwit and Mitch Weiser from New York. I'm not the, familiar with that. The story real quick is in the summer of 1973, so a year before the Lady of the Dunes, Bonnie Bickwit worked at Camp Wellman. It's a, I guess it's about an hour outside of New York City. And Hayden Clark in this letter offers up that he worked at the summer camp with her. And then he offers up, I think I was one of the last people to see her alive before she and her boyfriend vanished. So this is unprompted. You know, when Frank, as far as I know, when he wrote the letters, he wasn't saying, are there any other cases that you were involved in? He just offered this up. So I researched this case to see like, what is this? And he's not mentioned as far as being connected to it at any point. So it's almost like a, a random fresh lead. So I sent a photo of the part of the letter to a website. I think it's God, I think it's Bonnie and Mitch or Bonnie and Mitchell.com. It's run by the families. They got right back to me and they were asking me questions about Hayden Clark that I don't know the answers to. But I also wrote to the Sullivan County Sheriff's Department, who is that's where they're in charge of. And I have not heard back from them, which I don't know if that does not surprise me or whatever. But the thing is that here's another, it's peeling back the onion. Here's another case where something else is brought in based around the Lady of the Dunes. So that's the documentary and the book are Lady of the Dunes, her story. And all these other things seem to get pulled in. Like the wider net you cast, the more fish come in. So this Bonnie Bickwit one just came out of nowhere within the last few weeks because I hadn't even opened the letter. And I'm like, oh yeah, I should probably put that in the book. And here's this this convicted serial killer saying, I might've been the last one to see these two alive. And it's like, well, you know, that's kind of important for the investigation over there. Yeah. Did he admit to killing them? Or just you saying know, he them alive? I was gonna say, he just says that he might have been one of the last people to see her alive. And when you're someone that's, in jail for murders, you know, it, it's like, boy, you've got to check into it because maybe he's just full of BS and he's trying to, you know, get the light shined on him again because he's old and in jail and kind mm -hmm. of being irrelevant. 
but maybe there's more to it. It's like they have to at least ask him and see what happens. Well, you know, I, I feel bad when, when Chris brought this to my attention because I had read the letter. Just You ask him one question, he gives you two pages of, of just, oh, let me tell you about the 1960s and my brother and my great-great-grandfather. So you can't just come out and say, did you kill her? You know, sign Frank. He's like, you got to kind of open up. And so I, I was told to a lot of people in the, the Maryland Correctional, throw some snow, uh, snowballs at him. Just, some, just to see if he'll, he'll take the bait, you know, don't try to manipulate him, you know, be respectful. And so I did ask, um, not a loaded question, but I say, hey, I understand you worked at the Moore's restaurant in Provincetown in the summer of 74. What was that like? You know, just open up with some questions of like, hey, did you know the girl? What was her name? Why did you do it? Where in the dunes? Did you take articles? You know, so, and he wrote back with the first question, I didn't work at the Moore's in the summer of 74. I was there in the summer of 72. So, he's responding to a question from 47 years ago and he, he did not just go, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was there. He had to correct me with the fact that he did not work there that summer, but two previous summers. So when I brought this back to um, the correctional facility, they said, okay, he's, he's giving you some truth nuggets and you want to respect that. Cause one of the w- women that he murdered, um, they, they still don't know where her body is. So that you got to treat this not because the goal is to make a nice documentary. The goal is if he's able to have a line of communication with you, respect that. Because I think what the comedy made with Bonnie, he either wants to get out of his cell or talk to somebody or his conscience after 30 plus years of being in a room is saying, hey, yeah, I was the last person to saw them because I did something. Um, I literally ran right through that because it had nothing to do with Lady Dunes. And Chris went through it line by line to clean the book. And all of a sudden, boom, it could be a possible truth nugget that could solve another cold case. So interesting how everything is connected in some way. Frank, you had said something earlier about the chief of police, uh, Jimmy Meads. Why is he so important to the story of the Lady of the Dunes? For the documentary itself, I could not have done it without the blessing from the Meads family. And you, you got to ask yourself, this happened a half a century ago, and the Meads have never really sat down with any major news organization or video production or, or a documentary. So for them to come in and let me interview Jimmy Jr. and Michael about who, who their father was, what was involved with the case, um, he is essential because he's the first person to investigate this as the, the chief of police of Provincetown. And then also reading his bio and what he did, I, I had the feeling that if it's good enough for Jimmy, it's good enough for me. And he's the one back in the 80s who actually said, you know what, I'm going to go talk to a psychic. I'm going to go talk to mobsters. I'm going to go talk to anything that's going to help get this case solved. And he was the first one to take um, her skull to uh someone to do a, de- uh, a, a re-imaging of her face to get what she could have looked like uh, when she was alive. So he was using the ideas of science technology long before they even had the technology. And since Jimmy hired a, a psychic medium, I decided to, to work with multiple to myself to say, hey, maybe, maybe there's something here. So tell us now, did you solve the mystery? In my opinion, yes. Oh, we lost it. Right, right when I'm about oh, to give you the answer. You just... I know, right? I went to press mute, so I didn't interrupt you. Yeah. So let's do it again. Did you solve the mystery? Yes and no. I'll say yes, because we. the two questions is, who was she and who murdered her? And we do bring our two cents to the table for that. And I truly feel what occurred since last April in the last 52 weeks uh, it's not over yet. One, another thing that Stephen the Medium says is, he goes, I keep seeing a, a rose that's blooming, like things are starting to take shape and, and more is coming from this. So after the final credits roll, I, I truly feel that something's going to happen in the news. I, I, I truly feel with what's happening in law enforcement, and they've been working on this case diligently. I truly feel that there's, there's a lead. I think they have a match. And I think 2022 is the year that we uh, this case gets solved. Chris, do you agree? I do. With the things that from working with Frank and the research that he's done, because this is all his research. I'm just like chronicling him. I'm almost like his biographer. So there are things that have come up that there are a few that I hope are true. There are a few that I think are true. And there are some that are still out there. And that's the neat thing about the book is that the book is still going. It's not done. I, I want the premiere date to be kind of the last chapter. So things that have happened since filming wrap, there's th- things that have still come up. 
Mm. And that's what makes it like Frank was saying that they're, you know, it's just the beginning. And if things come out like that, I've got hopes on what I think might happen. And if anything we do can help that, I mean, that's what I've been saying all along is like Frank said, I'd rather know who she was, give her her name because she's a real person. Mm. You go to the grave. It says unidentified body in the race point dunes, but that no matter what her, choices in life were that got her to that point in the grave before that she was someone's child she was you know she had friends she had relatives so my whole thing is wanting to give her her name back now will you know Stephen the medium was saying that at some communicating with her she may enjoy the fame of being the lady of the dunes but the thing is there's a lot that has come up and I agree with Frank. I think this year will be when her name is given to her and the truth about what happened to her comes out. So Frank, what is the name of your movie and when will it be screened and where can people see it? Well, The Lady of the Dunes has two free screenings right now. One is completely sold out. Uh, so 1st of April, the Cape Cinema, which I just came back from today, they've only RSVP, I want to say a third of the seats. So there are still plenty of seats left for the Friday screening. The Provincetown's Theater, where we film most of the interviews, they are completely sold out. So we just sent them the screen a link to set up to have everything ready for April 2nd. And from there, I'm, I'm hearing back from distributors that are interested in taking the film. My big thing is, I want more of an audience than, than a payout. My, my goal is not to exploit to make it really any money off this. My goal is to say, hey, if you'll get it out to more screens, more audiences, and more people look into this, that, that's the goal. My, my goal, I think, has already been accomplished that there are a lot of things happening right now that I feel the information that we passed along to our contacts at the state police and, and the, the federal government has been looked into. And I, and I truly feel that um, it, this is this is beyond a solved case. There's no really I, at search. I, I kept looking for the conspiracy theory, Kimberly, like I mentioned, because everybody loves a good conspiracy theory. I go, OK, does it involve the Kennedys? Does it involve UFOs? Was she an alien? Like what's what's what is what's the excuse? And I searched for it and could not find it. So I don't I don't think there's been anything that relates to conspiracy theory that there's other things I we did find but at the end of the day I really feel that we have the technology we have enough information to find out who this woman's identity was and then from there the the, the, the why she was murdered will be I think quickly answered soon after we find out her identity have you thought about having an online screening at all because um, I'm in Montana I would love yep. to go but it's not going to happen yep. right now so yep. I mean have you explored that possibility well, any distributor now, they, they want the DVD sales, video on demand, VOD, but you know, it, it's almost like a one done deal. You sign to a distributor and they'll get it out to broadcasting, they'll get it online, they'll just send it out to the world to be able to download and watch from the comfort of their homes. Um, my big thing is I'm looking toward the education distribution is that way if I get into every library in the country and then for schools, then it's truly being used for an educational piece as a you know for-profit product. Um, and, and the journey, Chris will tell you, the journey alone of really meeting with canine groups, meeting with people with metal detectives, meeting with people from spiritual and mediumships, uh, it's been a fun ride. And it's an eye opener to the story of really the backstory of Lady of the Dunes. So I think that alone has been a giant success. And Chris, what about you? Do you have a name for your book yet? You said it's not yet complete. So what are you thinking about for names and when do you think it will be available for people to read? So I'm leaning towards either searching for the Lady of the Dunes or finding the Lady of the Dunes. It kind of depends on what happens in the next few months, depending on if an identity is revealed, then it's finding her. Mm. But my thing is I'm looking for a publisher because I feel this is big this is a big like true crime is big this story mm -hmm. is big i feel the need to aim high as far as where i pitch it and so i'm not sure exactly when it will be out i'm hoping likely early next year because right now the the book is written up to now like this 
here, you know, so <laughs> the, the rewrite, well, I don't know. I mean, I'll, I'm sure I'll mention that we were on a podcast. It's funny. Everything that happens goes into the book. I'm just careful with how I name names. Well, I understand that. So we've covered most of the questions I had, but is there anything that either of you want to add before we wrap things up? Chris, you want to go first? Sure. I'm, so this has been a great chapter of my life working on this project because this, the Lady of the Dunes is something that I've grown up with. So potentially having the chance to be a part of something that brings closure to that case is it's bigger than writing a book. It's the chance to do something important. I mean, I, like I said, Cape Cod, I've grown up here my whole life. My family's all here. So getting the chance to work on this and it's been educational learning about kind of what was going on behind closed doors in Provincetown and, it's been like living in a movie where the more I go on, you know, what Frank would share with things that he's seen and done, it's like writing a movie script, but it's real. And that's what's just fascinating. So I'm hoping that everybody, when they get the chance, sees the documentary. And then when they get the chance, checks out the book. And like, I don't want to spoil Frank's life. Like Frank usually says, you know, ask the question why. And that's what I'm hoping comes from this is, you know, why does she not have her name? Why is there no killer? Why, 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 why? Mm. You know, I think, Chris, we, we, we've worked well together because we're both seasoned. And this is, I want to say this is your seventh, if not eighth book. And I've been doing this comfortably for about 20 years, Kimberly. I'm just doing documentaries, feature films, uh, shorts. If I did this 10 years ago or even 20 years ago, we would not have had a giant success what we did because as you get seasoned you almost become immune to uh, like oh we just discovered that we, we found this we're like oh okay let's let's get it on tape let's this is a good as opposed to really unable to ask the questions and, and, and talk to the people like you know you're calling james bulger's attorneys or you're writing a letter to hayden clock or you're talking to people who are primary sources people who are involved with the initial investigation um you need to know what you're doing and and also selling people and why we're trying to write a book and, and produce a documentary in the first place. And like I mentioned, if we didn't get a lot of doors open for us, it, it would have been close to impossible because a lot of people do not want to go there. Oh, she dead girl. She's dead for 50 years. Let it go. And we, we weren't shocked, but we were getting the threat of like a lot of people just don't want to go there because they have to talk about a lot of what was happening in the culture at the time to explain how something like this could be possible. And, um, we were kind of secretive in a lot of ways. And at the same time, to this day, a lot of people still don't want to talk about it. And that, that was the biggest thing that we discovered was there's a reason why it's been an unsolved cold case for 47 years. Well, I just want to thank you both for doing what you have. She was a person. And as you said, Chris, she had a name. She had friends. She had family. She was somebody's little girl at one point. So hopefully we can bring this mystery to a close and you all can help do that and identify her and then identify who kept her. So thank you so much for being on today. Thank you, Kimberly. Yep. Thank you so much, Kimberly, for having us. Well, thank you. And thank you to everyone who has been listening. I encourage you both to keep your, to keep your eyes open for the book that will be coming out that Chris is writing, but also if you're able to go to the one unsold out screening of the movie. It sounds like it will definitely be worthwhile. I'm in Montana, so I won't be able to make it, but I wish I could and I'll be keeping my eyes open for when it's distributed and I can see it. Thank you everyone for listening to this special episode of the Reform Podcast. Uh, before we go, if you want to support the work we're doing, go ahead and rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you use. Your voice matters. And in this case, try and use it to spread the message of the Lady of the Dunes so we can finally identify her. Thank you, everyone.
Be mine. 